Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Collier guys, and we're talking about um, Ordo Templi Orientis. I think I said yeah. that right. That's right. Ordo Templi Orientis. Yeah, the OTO, and that's what will be the focus of this show. Um, Ren is a member of a lodge up there, which we've we've kind of skirted around a lot of this stuff in the previous interviews that we've done with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we never really have really sat down and talk about it. So that's kind of what I, why I wanted to get you on. And and you're actually missing Lodge Night tonight to, yeah, to, to come yeah. on and do this show. So Yeah, I go every uh, Tuesday. So, yeah, I'm a Minerva in the OTO. Um, I got initiated uh, earlier this year. Okay. And I've been going to the Leaping Laughter Oasis uh, which is the OTO Lodge here in Minneapolis, uh, for a little over a year now. Um, I think I originally found out about it because I was listening to an episode of uh, Alexander Eth's excellent podcast, Glitch Bottle, and he was talking to uh, Dr. Joe Peterson. And uh, Joseph Peterson mentioned something about uh, like a some book he was researching and the university library he mentioned getting it from uh, it was like the University of St. Thomas, I think. And I was like, wait, that's Minneapolis. Is he in Minneapolis? And I looked it up and sure enough, Joe Peterson's in Minneapolis. And 
then I found out that um, he mentioned sleeping laughter. And I was like, what is that? So I Googled it. And I was like, oh, there's like an OTO lodge here. And I looked at the calendar and it had on the calendar every Tuesday night a ritual workshop. Um, and it said, you know, come learn to be a magician, like, you know, practice rituals and that kind of stuff. So I, I didn't go for a long time. Uh, it was several months before I sort of worked up the nerve to go. And I was really happy in that everyone there was like super friendly and nice. And um, that's where I met my my current mentor, uh, Scott Stenwick, uh, who leads. He's been doing the ritual night for, for years now. So every Tuesday he's up there. And I learned more in sort of the first year of being there and actually having like a mentor, actually having like real magicians to talk to and bounce things off of. Uh, than I did in like years of just uh, private study Um, because the whole it's kind of like fight club like Mm -hmm. the only rule of ritual night is that everyone has to do a ritual if you go you got to do something Uh, even if it's just um, doing like the LBRP uh, the lesser banishing ritual the pentagram which is like the first thing Scott teaches and so there's sort of like it's a revolving door sort of there's there's people that come and then they go um some of the people that were going when i first started going i haven't seen in months so some people just drop off the face of the earth um but there is a core group of like me and scott and some other people up there who uh, are regulars and it's been nice because uh at least the regular people assuming it's a night when there's like no new people or no just like sometimes you just get like curious people will come um since we're all sort of advanced now and we've all learned all the basic stuff that Scott has to teach, we started doing more advanced stuff. So like we recently started getting into Enochian magic, which has been really interesting and, and wild. Okay. Now is Enochian, um, is it, is it an essential part of the OTO? No. And, and that's that, yeah, that's something we were talking about before the, uh, for the call, but yeah, a lot of the ritual night stuff that Scott does uh, but because Leaping Laughter is made up of so many practicing magicians, um, like uh, like Harper Feist, uh, Rufus, Brother Rufus Opus, Rufus, Rufus Opus. Oh, even. yeah, I've, I've heard of him. <laughs> actually, think, I think we're three uh, times in a row. I think actually I'm friends with Facebook on Facebook with that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Josh Gadbois. Yeah. That's yeah. That's him. Mm-hmm. Name, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's there's several other people. Like I said, I don't I don't think Joe Peterson is actually a thelemite. But he's done talks there. So, um, you know, recently Lon Milo Duquette came up and hung out with us. That yeah, was he was fun. here in Nashville not too long ago. Yeah, he's and got a new book out. Um, that I, got to me- I got to meet him in Minneapolis when I went to the to that last Paradigm Symposium. Oh, nice. Yeah, he's hilarious. Like, I, I loved hanging out with him. I got him to, like, sign one of his books for me. And he kept intentionally misspelling my name. <laughs> well, he comes from like, you know, he comes from a very, I guess he's in his 70s now, but he comes from, mm-hmm. so he came of age like in the time of the hippie counterculture. Oh, yeah. So yeah, he's I definitely guess, like an old hippie. Did he, I mean, I guess that some of this stuff really, this OTS stuff, because people really, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about Crowley, of course. Mm-hmm. Although the OTO wasn't originally founded by Crowley, which I did not know until very recently. Mm-hmm. But, um, and we'll talk about all that too. But mm-hmm. um, I guess that during the 60s, then the counterculture really kind of rediscovered Crowley and all this, all his like teachings. Cause you know, you got 
Crowley mm-hmm. on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band and all that mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff that was going on. Yeah, you sort of had, I, I guess, like a magical revival in the 70s um, that Crowley was a part of. Uh, you, that was also sort of the start of what we now know as like Wicca um, mm-hmm. was brought over here by Gerald Gardner and uh, got really popular. Um, but yeah, um, just to, to finish my original point about the, the ritual night thing and the like magic sure. in, in the lodge. Yeah. Um, so the lodge does do sort of, I guess, religious thalamic stuff, which is, you know, sort of the main focus of the OTO. It's like a fraternal organization, right. With a, with an ecclesiastical like component in the, uh, the official, I guess, church of Thalema, which is the Ecclesia Gnostica Catholica. Um, so like they do uh, Gnostic mass every Sunday, um, sometimes due on Mondays, uh, which if uh, listeners have never been to a Gnostic mass, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's really fun. It's cool. It's interesting. So if you got a local body, um, go to Gnostic mass. Uh, it's cool. It's not like a Catholic mass. You don't have to convert to uh, take communion. It's pretty cool. Uh, but so the magic stuff, the Enochian, um, <clears throat> the goetic work, uh, the spirit work, um, all the different type of magical stuff we do up there isn't necessarily related to the OTO. It's just a byproduct of there being so many practicing magicians right. who are members of the lodge. So like Scott, my mentor, uh, he's written several books on Enochian stuff like Mastering the Magical Heptarchy. And that's sort of his specialty is is specifically like angel magic and Enochian magic. And so that's kind of what he teaches us. Um, there are some specifically thalamic rituals that we learn, like uh, Libra Reguli or the Star Ruby and the Star Sapphire. Um, but for the most part, uh, our sort of instruction there encompasses the entirety of Western occultism. Um and, and yeah, it's it's not directly related. It's it's sort of like, um, I, I guess we may talk about this later, but the AA, like the, what is it, Astra Margentum or whatever, yeah. the Silver mm-hmm. Star. Uh-huh. It, the AA is like technically sort of, it, it's not technically related to the OTO, but they like are partnered with the OTO. They were both founded by Crawley. Right. And the AA is sort of like the magical version of the OTO, I guess. I mean, people will probably skin me alive for saying that, but like, Come on. Um, it is it, it was sort of a success organization to the Golden Dawn, but it it, it it is inexorably linked to the OTO. Right. A lot of people who are in the OTO are also members of the AA. Um, but to join the AA, it's a lot more complicated. Like you have to actually know someone who's in the AA. You have to take instruction from them personally. You can't do it over the Internet. Um, but a lot of the stuff that Scott teaches us is sort of AA type material, um, but without all the sort of trapping and gatekeeping that comes along with the official AA. And the AA is a whole other thing too, because there's all this like drama going on with the AA about like, with, there's multiple AAs and like people argue over which AA is the correct like AA and you know who's the actual successor. And um, Scott explained it to me one time and it just made my head spin because <laughs> it's like all <laughs> politics and stuff and i'm just like who gives a crap about this because yeah, it's, it's like 
<laughs> you know, it's it's like king of the jungle gem kite well, and stuff. It's doesn't like, it, doesn't all that really come from uh, Crowley kind of leaving? A, uh, he just kind of left a void and didn't have a formal system of succession. Isn't that what really happened? Yeah, with the AA specifically. Yeah, he never really named a successor, and or maybe he did. I can't remember. It's something like either he didn't leave a successor or the person he left as a successor uh, didn't leave a successor. I think it was that the latter there because I think he kind of named. Uh, Frater Ashad as his successor and then Ashad kind of like gave up all the Thelemic stuff and became like a Christian and um, didn't really name a successor or anything and then you sort of have these two competing factions where one side says no this is the true line of succession and the other side says no, this is the true line and it, it's really it's kind of disappointing because at least in theory the AA was supposed to fix and remedy a lot of the problems that the Golden Dawn had right um, yeah Specifically, like the petty infighting and drama. Yeah, uh, that didn't, didn't work basically. out too well, did it? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, like, in the AA, you're supposed to be secret. Like, you're only supposed to know like your immediate like contact. It's it's sort of like that whole like um like you know you only know the guy one step ahead of you, um, and no one else. But then Crowley also says that uh, every member of the AA should make themselves publicly known. Like as a member of the AA, so it's like, well, which is it, dude? Because can't really do one and, and do the other too. So now, now, how is the uh, Typhonian order linked up to all this? So the Typhonian stuff, I don't know a ton about, other than thinking it's super cool <laughs> and like <laughs> I really like what like little Kenneth Grant I've been able to read. It's sort of hard to track down his books, and I'm I'm terrible at reading on a computer screen. Enter so library loan, my brother. Yeah, I need to I need to look into that. Um, I keep I keep looking on eBay and like Amazon and when I try to find some stuff for cheap. I've seen a couple that are that are not too bad, but um, Kenneth Grant's whole thing I think was that he sort of wanted to create his own sort of Aeon, or he was naming his own like the Aeon of Set or whatever. He's got his own ideas about uh, sort of the purpose of. I guess the magical system involved in the lama, like he, he kind of went full bore with this stuff that Crowley said sort of late in his life about how the, you know, the main aim of magic was, um, communication with extra, you know, well, let's just use the phrase extraterrestrial entities. Right. Um, but that I don't necessarily mean space aliens, but I think your listeners are smart enough to figure it out. Sure. Um, but, Grant raps, he goes whole hog with that. So he's like, yeah, the whole aim of magic, the whole aim of the Typhonian order is like to contact these, you know, beings from beyond the stars. But he also wraps it in this whole like Lovecraftian kind of mythos and stuff. Like he, right. he sort of treats Lovecraft as like some like, you know, like the Necronomicon is if it were like a historical document and 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 ties in all that stuff. And it's 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 interesting because it's it's very tied up in like pulp sci-fi kind of stuff in, in a similar fashion to the way Poker Onion's um, OTA the Order Order yes. Temple of Astarte it's very wrapped up in like pulp sci-fi and Shaver Mystery and Hollow Earth stuff. Really? Yeah, he's a big fan huh. of like pulp pulp sci-fi. <laughs> and so it's Grant. So, yeah. but Grant was uh, he was like Crowley's. I think he was Crowley's. Um, secretary for a little brief period of time mm -hmm. um but grant sort of styled himself as this is that's that's kind of the problem i've talked a little bit about this with, uh, with tim renner and his show one of the issues with thalema and the oto in general is that uh what you said was, is totally right like crowley sort of didn't really leave 
a successor. Um, there was Ashad, but Ashad kind of went off and did his own thing. Uh, there, Jack Parsons could have been a successor to Crowley, but he blew himself up or got blown up, depending on which version of the story. Sure. Right. Um, so it was, you know, there is a void left there um, that was never really filled by anyone. Um, I guess Mc, was it Grady McMurtry or whatever when he reformed the OTO later? Um, because there was a brief period of time after, uh, what was his name, died. Um, oh, yeah. So, like, Carl Germer. Yeah, Gurmer. after Crowley died. Yeah, Germer sort of led the OTO for a little while after Crowley died. Uh, but And then he... Um, in America, too, right? Yeah, in America, yeah. But the problem was, I mean, during World War II, the OTO's presence in Europe was pretty much deleted. Because um, the Nazis didn't, you know, while privately, the Nazis were into the occult. Publicly, they weren't. And, and it has, so you it has saw, very continental European roots. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess we can talk about the history of the OTO a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's what I was history. thinking. We'll yeah. just kind of go full circle and start with uh, really where it, where it came from and some of the mm-hmm. some of the figures in uh, this magical history that uh, that started it uh, before before Crowley kind of uh, had a lasting impact that changed it forever. Yeah. So, um, so like, kind of originally, the OTO was kind of a quasi Masonic. Thing. It was basically this, this guy uh, wanted to basically make a, like a German Masonic Lodge. Um, so he they it was Theodore Roos, um, Karl Kellner. They um, created the OTO in what, like 1895. And I've heard it described this way, and I think it's really funny, but it's also kind of true. The original incarnation of the OTO is basically a Masonic Lodge and Swingers Club for gay German guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for the most part, that's what it what it was. I mean, it was a way for, like, gay German guys to hook up in a culture that, like, you know, you could get in serious trouble for being gay in. So, um, and it was and it was controversial with other Masonic Lodges because of these things. Like, there were apparently, like, kind of, like homosexual elements within the initiatory rites and things like that. But um, it's it's not actually super interesting until Crowley gets involved with it. Um, so uh, Royce meets Aleister Crowley in 1910 and admits him to the first three degrees. And within like two years, Crowley is promoted to like the 10th degree. He's made like prince of holy king of ireland or something like god <laughs> i mean god knows what he did or either royce really really liked him or crowley i mean i just crowley was a charismatic guy so um but i mean he just immediately shoots up to the top of it but what really happens is uh i mean there's a lot of stuff kind of in between but what really happens is that crowley basically cuts everyone out of the OTO as it exists. Like Royce has a stroke and like the relationship between him and Crowley starts to really deteriorate. And in a way it's very similar to sort of what happened, uh, after Crowley got involved with the golden Dawn. Um, I, I get the feeling that what he tried to do with this takeover of the golden Dawn, or at least he attempted to take it over. Um, 
but sort of ultimately failed. I mean, the Golden Dawn eventually self-imploded anyway. Um, but he was successful in sort of taking over the OTO, and he sort of made it to his own thing. Like, he wrote the Gnostic Mass. Um, he, you know, created the Book of the Law. Uh, he developed his ideas about Thelema and Will. And he sort of made the OTO less a Masonic Lodge thing, more into a fraternal organization based around his own personal ideology. Um, now, now, did the one in Germany, did it kind of still stay kind of pure or did, did Crowley just take over the whole thing? I, he kind of just took over the whole thing. Okay. Um, but the problem was, like I said, during World War II, basically it was driven underground. Um, yeah. Especially in like Germany and stuff. And the only real OTO body that existed during this period after and during World War II was the Agape Lodge in California, which, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Jack Parsons was a member of. So uh, Crowley was, um, I can't remember if Crowley ever actually visited the Agape Lodge, but he was like writing letters to them and stuff. Right. Yeah, I know him so, and Parsons had a correspondence together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so Crowley sort of led them from the outside. Uh, but in a lot of ways, yeah, I mean, the United States sort of, the United States community, occult community, sort of saved the OTO. Um, but even then, after uh, after Crowley's death, it still sort of fell apart um, because, you know, he didn't really have any, there was no clear succession uh, because all the successors sort of either failed or went and did their own thing or died. And so before Crowley really came along, though, the, the bulk of the actual work in in the OTO was the they they purchased the the right of Memphis Miserum right and then also the Swedenborg mm -hmm. right yep mm -hmm. and then they also I guess Rose was also involved in he, he tried to create a uh, a college of the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia in Germany so you also have the the probably most important Rosicrucian order at the time as well involved with the OTO Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was from his involvement with uh, Westcott, I guess. So that, isn't that kind of like a lasting influence of Cagliostro also? Because isn't Cagliostro primarily responsible for the right of Memphis and Miserum? Uh I mean, is, isn't that apocryphal? Right. Though? So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess. Although I'm not actually like super up on masonry, so you probably know more about that than I do. But just in that, there's like a uh, – the OTO is kind of like a, – a, it's carrying some of these more obscure uh, Masonic traditions that probably would have been lost otherwise, it seems like. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, it's still heavily influenced by, by Masonry, um, even down to the design of the temple, uh, the way things are set up, the, initi the initiations themselves. Um, Crowley borrowed a lot from Masonry for it, and so there's still like a lot of Masonic imagery and, and symbolism. Um, it, it's not... Like, just to be clear, it's not, like, Freemasonry, but it is, it's from the same heritage, I guess right. you'd say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I guess at, at one time, some would have considered it to be an official body, right? But there was a lot of dispute, yeah. and the others would say yeah. that it was irregular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was kind of the problem. I think um, other Masonic organizations didn't like the OTO because it... Uh, it sort of had its own thing. It was kind of doing its own thing. Yeah. Um, and they didn't like that. Well, Though, and what, it was what, men and women, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that that's the one big thing. Yeah, the OTO doesn't restrict based on uh, gender at all. So, um, as far as I know, women have always been allowed in the OTO. I could be wrong on that, but um, that is a big difference when you in, in Freemasonry where women aren't allowed. Cool. So then, allowing the girls to the boys' club. Uh oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So then Crowley comes along and, and pretty much, I mean, he pretty much just takes over. Yeah, he kind of takes over and makes it his own organization. And so can you kind of elaborate on that and, and how Philema itself really starts? And that's with, I guess, with the Book of the Law, right? Yeah, so so Crowley, um, I'm trying to remember when the Book of the Law was written. It was like 1904, I think is what Oh four, oh five. Yeah, yeah. Hey, is that the one that he oh four writes? Oh four, or yeah. basically transmitted to him in the pyramid in the king's chamber. Is that the one? Well, he wasn't actually in the king's chamber when he uh, he he did do some stuff and rituals and stuff in the king's chamber. Um, he apparently made the sylphs appear, or so he says. Uh-huh. Um, but the actual writing of the book of the law happened in his hotel room uh, in Cairo. Um, basically over the course of three days. So he wrote pretty much nonstop for three days. Um, apparently this book is, it's considered like a channeled text. So it's a book that is dictated, was dictated to him by this entity named Iwas, who basically laid out um, a sort of philosophy and ideology based around uh, a person's will. Like the basic tenet of the lemma, like the, the the thing is, you know, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Right. Um, with this idea being that every human being has the right to live their life like as they choose, and has the ability to like self self actualize basically. And so he develops his theories about the lemma, uh, or is transmitted them by Iwas, and puts it into the book of the law. Um, and I think it wasn't until, well, yeah, cause he didn't join the OTO until 1910. So he had kind of already had the book of the law and this other stuff before then. Um, but he started to incorporate elements of the lemma sort of after he took over the OTO. And that, that the essence of the law, do it thou wilt, shall be the whole law, love is the law, love under will. It it seems mm-hmm. real, like it strikes people as being like, oh, that just means do whatever you want, etc. But mm-hmm. yeah. but really, when you look into it, it's it's so ingrained in our culture now, it's basically just the idea that of finding your purpose, finding your true will, or what you're supposed to be doing in life. And we just mm-hmm. totally take that for granted. But Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it doesn't it's necessarily mean go out and just kill people. No. Which is, I think... A, a misconception you'll get more you for like the more Christian fundamentalist crowd. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So let me break this down for people. So please. Yeah. So like my, my girlfriend's currently editing a book right now on sort of Wicca stuff. Um, and it brings up that whole statement. That a lot of people are familiar with where it's like, and, and it do no harm do it thou wilt, which is just something Gardner just like stole from, Crowley when he developed Wicca, uh, he just decided to add that little thing at the beginning to make it very milk toast and limp wristed. But like, and do no harm is, is like implicit in the instructions because it, it's not just do what thou wilt. It's that do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Meaning that there is a law 
and the only law is do what thou wilt. But if you do something that denies another person their will, mm-hmm. like say murder them, yeah, then you're breaking the law because it's their their right to do what thou wilt as well as it is your right. So it's like that cancels it out essentially. That you know mm-hmm. that that whole concept, yeah. Yeah, like if you do something to deny someone else their will, then you are not following the law. Like you are not adhering to the law of the lemma. Um, and I see, you know, I, I see do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law as sort of a resounding like like statement of like freedom. You know, it's, it's like everyone should be free to live their life how they choose, uh, to uh, pursue their interests, um, to be creative, to love who they want, uh, to say what they want. It's like a statement. Of, I mean, it's it's ideas that were enshrined in some form or another in our own country's, you know, Declaration of Independence. Yeah, it's totally life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Yeah, exactly. That That's what do what thou wilt really is. It, it's not be a total asshat and hurt and, and other people and do whatever you want to do. Um, it, it is a statement that everyone has the right to be who they want to be. And like, as a, as a Thelemite, like, I feel like it's my responsibility to make the world like a better place where people can realize their true will, because how can, how can the law of the lame is supposed to be for everyone, for every, every human being in existence. Um, so how can people realize their true will? How can they realize, you know, how can they do what they want to wilt if there are things like poverty and, and racism and oppression, like all of these things prevent people from, from pursuing their true will. And so if we want to live in a world, if like we want to live in the Aeon of Horus, as, as Crowley called it, as sort of the successor to the Aeon of Osiris, which is, the, the paradigm that the Abrahamic religions formed. Um, we have to make the world like a better, more equitable place. But Crowley being a really a product of, uh, of his upbringing. And in, I mean, mm-hmm. in the book of the law, there, there is some real kind of like elitist sentiment. I felt from it. It, it did definitely yeah. strike against, um, you know, collectivism and things like that. So how do you, how do you kind of mm-hmm. reconcile that though? So, yeah, you're right. It is a part, sort of, part of his upbringing. He was a Victorian English Yeah, he was very much a, a, a man of his class. Yeah. yeah. But, I, but I do, a lot of people bring up that line, and the slaves shall serve. Um, but my interpretation of that line is that, like, we, like Thelemites, everyone, we all are the slaves, right? So it's your job to serve other human beings. It's your job to serve like humanity in order to realize uh, the law of the lemma for everyone. Hmm. So I don't, I don't see it as uh, some people see it as like, Oh, well, you know, the Thelemites will rule the world and then the, the Christians are going to be our slaves or something. Um, that That's not how I see it at all. Well, like I, I see, yeah. I see us as the slaves. I could see it too, as just meaning that people who have the opportunity who don't want to follow their will are just going to do what they're doing already. Yeah, they're going to serve the interests of others, yeah. you know. They're going to serve the interests of corporations, of capitalists, like they're going to serve everything but themselves. 
So what is the uh, what was the influence of the Golden Dawn on the OTO in Crowley? I know for I know the Enochian magic really was was preserved, I guess, and elaborated by the Golden Dawn. Uh, they were kind of the keepers of Dee's tradition, right? And then then yeah. Crowley kind of took that and and continued it in his work and brought it into the OTO. Am I right about that? Or I don't know if he brought it so much into the OTO because because like I said earlier the oto isn't technically like a magical order um so, but into his work he he did yeah into his it. own work for sure for sure yeah because that's where you get like the the callings of the aethers or whatever um that come in and that I, the d stuff is a little weird because the golden dawn took a lot of liberties with these material as well and kind of right. developed it and made it their own which a lot of the western magical tradition stuff is created pretty much whole cloth by the Golden Dawn, like things like the Lesser Vanishing Ritual of the Pentagram. It has no historical basis. It's just, you know, it was created by the Golden Dawn to use it. And it uses like, you know, symbology and stuff that has meaning, but it's not like, it, you're not going to find it in the grimoire from, you know, medieval France. Um, but yeah, I mean, you saw them, at least some people within the Golden Dawn become fascinated by uh, Dee's work and you see other elements of the Grimoire tradition make their way into Crowley's work as well, because he, um, him and Mathers were responsible for, I guess, the most popular version of the Goetia that came out. Um, it's a pretty bad version of the Goetia, uh, because Crowley has this really snotty like intro to it, and Mathers made a lot of like translation errors and things in it. Um, if you ever really want to get like, by the way, if you if you're a listener and you want to get like a good, sort of catty history of the uh, Golden Dawn, there's a book called The uh, Magicians of the Golden Dawn, that is kind of like a good history of it, um, and especially kind of goes into the character of Mathers, who is uh, kind of a scoundrel. Um, it was funny how you saw Mathers sort of become what Crowley was later in life. Like, sort of a withered, uh, kind of, I don't know, like, tragic figure. Um, having to beg people for money, sort of going behind people's backs and betraying people. Um, I don't think Crowley was as bad as Mathers, because Mathers got really bad in his in his waning twilight years. Um, but a lot of they they took a lot of the stuff that was floating around at the time like from the sort of grimoire tradition from Dee's work and they sort of tried to syncretize it with a lot of the eastern like uh, eastern uh philosophy i guess you'd say and that's when it's first coming to the west really yeah yeah through like the theosophical society and and uh yeah mm-hmm madame blavatsky so you sort of have this big oriental influence uh trying to just kind of combine all this stuff together that's just kind of pouring on in from yeah. every different place yeah yeah because you have the edge of colonialism too so you have right. a lot of like these you know english guys coming back from india uh you know they're over there for a little while and going they, native yeah yeah exactly they go native they come back they wear turbans all the time um drink gin and tonics but yeah so you see a lot of that tied into it but it's it is interesting in the fact that like um it 
for all of the faults of like the Golden Dawn's material, and, and like think what you want about the Golden Dawn ritual material. Like I personally don't have a huge problem with it. I use Golden Dawn rituals uh, in my daily work. Like I'm fine with it. Um, but it does bring back an element of energy work mm. that is pretty absent in Western uh, occultism, both both Arabic and sort of medieval European occultism. Um, a lot of Western occultism relies very heavily on occult virtues. So like the, the occult properties of, say, like stones, minerals, herbs, um, animals, uh, the stars, there's like a heavy astrological influence. But it pretty much lacks any sort of, I guess, coherent theory about the energy circulating in the human body, um, which is exactly how like uh, Taoism or Taoism works. Hmm. In like Taoism, um, it, it's really interesting. If you there's a book called like the Altar, uh, the Taoist Altar, something like that, the Altar of Taoism, um, that I was I've been reading through, and what I'm realizing is that, like. Taoism is like a, it's basically the Western magical tradition with with like an energy element because you have like the whole qigong element to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many rituals that are very similar. Um, there's like setting up of magical fields. Uh, there's using black mirrors and scrying. Uh, there's like magical weapons. It there's like so much that you can look at and say, okay, like Western magic and this had some sort of common ancestor. Um, but Taoism never lost the the energy side things too, and it's still a living tradition. Which is not the Western occult tradition is not a living tradition. It's a fragmented, like broken system that um, has had to restart multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess what I'm saying is, if you want to be a real magician, just go be a Taoist. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah. If I, you think can, I, I think a few of those guys. Uh, have become figured that out uh, you know as well right very early Mm -hmm. on that if you had to really go like i watched this documentary about um about crowley and there was one of his associates i don't remember his name but this guy i mean he got fairly serious into buddhism like he just became Mm -hmm. a buddhist monk and i I think you know who i'm probably who i'm probably talking about but uh, you know the definitely just you know as a starting off point with western occultism and some of these guys really just went well you know they went to the source which was Mm -hmm. mixed in with all this eastern mysticism yeah and then again like we mentioned a lot of that eastern mysticism was being brought over to england and filtered through the lens of westerners Mm -hmm. and so it gets mutated into sort of what becomes the, the golden dawn like i mean we still like even still in the West, like we use the term feng, feng shui, but we don't really know what it means. Like, yeah. It means, yeah, it doesn't like the what we think of feng shui is not what a Taoist would think of as feng shui. Right. So Crowley's whole purpose in having to establish this new law was because he felt we were coming into a new age, right? The age of Horus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Aeon of Horus. He sort of believed in this idea that the history of the world is divided into like sort of aeons or these vast spans of time. Um, originally there was the aeon of sort of Isis, um, represented by, uh, maternal, like mother goddesses, um, that sort of tradition. And then you have that followed up by the aeon of Osiris, which is primarily built around religions that center upon this concept of death and rebirth. Um, because, you know, as, as, Egyptian mythology nerds will know Osiris was uh, killed and then reborn. 
Um, and so you sort of have the Abrahamic religions as being the uh, what's the right word? Sort of the example of like the age, the Anna of Osiris, like the natural out, outgrowth of that. A lot of sky God and, um, mm-hmm. uh, patriarchal. Yeah. It's patriarchal. It requires sacrifice and, and deference of your will mm. to, to sort of father figures. Cause you know, the, the I guess what it's all about, like, the commandments and the laws and uh you know uh what's the the arabic term for things like that are forbidden um halal yeah like halal stuff or like you know all the rules and like deuteronomy and and, in in traditional judaism it's all about rules it's all about um suppressing your own will uh in service of sort of a higher purpose or a higher God, but sacrificing yourself, you know, living out an ascetic, uh, joyless existence on earth for some sort of promised reward in the afterlife. Um, and Crowley particularly was like, he really didn't like Christianity, um, which being like a gay guy living in Victorian England, I can kind of understand where he's coming from there. Well, I think, Probably I think the great. main problem with, with Crowley mm-hmm in that respect is that he grew up Plymouth Brethren, which was, oh, really? which was probably one of the most extreme. So I oh, mean yeah. like the Plymouth Brethren, that's where you get all this rapture and left behind series stuff. That's where oh, that all comes this. from. Yeah. All, all that kind of like, you know, the, the, the whole biblical prophecy movement essentially starts with the, uh, the Plymouth Brethren in England and his, okay. his father was, well, I guess he was a brewer, but he was also a Plymouth brethren, uh, minister. And, uh, so a lot of the, the imagery that Crowley used is straight out of, it was kind of like a, a mutation of the, the things that he, like the, the, the Babylon, I mean, that concept, the woman on the, on the dragon, all that oh, stuff. Yeah. He just pulls right out of revelations, a revelation because Plymouth brethren were so obsessed with revelation. Yeah, definitely. He called himself the Beast. Um, right, right, saw, right. Saw the Beast as sort of like the um, the the creature upon which Babylon will will ride. Yeah, and 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 yeah, and and sort of he sort of, he sort of, sort of excuse me he sort of saw the Aeon of Osiris as ending because um, I think we we're entering like the age of Aquarius or whatever. And he saw as this as sort of opening the door to a new Aeon, and specifically the transference of the book of the law was in, in his opinion sort of the initiating um factor in the creation of the new aeon uh which is the aeon of horus or the child so it's the aeon of individuality of uh, freedom and you know in a way he's not entirely wrong because yeah. you you do see you know the last several hundred years uh you see the birth of like representational democracy um ideas of sort of personal liberty uh, like you know of course the enlightenment and all that kind of stuff happened way before Crowley. But it is, if you want to look at it in an aeonic sense, I, I do feel like that is an element of the aeon of Horus coming into being. Hmm. And there's a whole cosmology in Thelema as well. I want to talk about, and it, it, mm-hmm. it primarily derives from ancient Egyptian gods. Yeah, it does. I, 
I wish I knew exactly why that was, because I haven't gotten too much into the the Thelemic cosmology stuff. Because ancient um, Egypt was cool, man. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. I think it it could just be <laughs> Orientalism. I mean, it, the the basic three sort of deities, I guess you would call them, like uh, Nuit, who is sort of the goddess of the stars. She sort of represents the entirety of the cosmos. Um, you have uh, Hadit who is, uh, I'm probably mangling this, but he sort of represents, I guess, like the world. And then like Rahu or Kuwait or, or Horus, who sort of represents, uh, you know, he's like the child of the new Aeon. Um, and there in the book of the law is broken up into three big sections. Each section is dictated by, uh, by one of those entities. So I think like the first one is dictated by Nuit. Um, the second chapter, I believe, is Hadit, and the third is Rahur Kuit. I could have the second and third backwards, but these um, are the these are the ages or the aeons or the cosmology well, or the cosmology. Yeah, they're they're sort of like the deities of the lame, if you right. want to call them that. There's not right. really like deities, really, but you know, they're they're sort of the cosmic forces that are considered to be uh, sort of the rulers of the aeon. Is it just like time and space and concepts like that, or? Kind of, yeah, because Nuit is, is sort of the concept of, like, space. Um, it goes a little bit beyond that into, into the, uh, what is it, the phrase, like, the cause and, or the coups and the cobs, not the cobs and the coup or something. But it, it goes into this idea that, like, you have an immortal spirit that isn't necessarily only you. Like, you're sort of part of some kind of greater collective intelligence right um and you're just like a man you're like a manifestation of that intelligence uh it's it's very eastern i I think in its ideas and you definitely see that influence i think in that work because it's it's not it's not really the idea of like maya or like this world is an illusion kind of thing but rather like this world is the dream sort of like this is what we perceive of as reality and our individual lives and this existence is uh, not an illusion, but I'm struggling to find the right words here. It's less real. Yeah. Like it's, it's like like what a dream to this is we are Mm -hmm. to the, the next world or another world. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can, I can definitely kind of sympathize and relate to that idea. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, there's also the concept, um, and we mentioned this just briefly, but the concept of Babylon, and then also Therion, as well. Yeah, so so Crowley is is Therion, so he's sort of the prophet of the new Aeon, if you want to see him as that. Um, but he's sort of the herald of the new Aeon. Hmm. Uh, what's interesting is that, like, Grant's argument against the Aeon of uh, Horus and in, in his argument for like a, the Aeon of Set is that um, he claims that Crowley never really spoke the word of the Aeon. He never like kind of like fully initialized it. Um, so and that he, may very well be true. He just forgot. I mean, like, <laughs> no, more like more like he didn't finish the work. Mm. Um, he died of, too of, soon or something. Yeah. Yeah, or just, like, never really finished it. But, I mean, you see that in the Book of the Law, because there's this really interesting passage where 
um, Iwas basically tells him like you're going to fail in in your what you're doing, and that your successor is going to be the one that actually carries on the work. Interesting. So did Kenneth Grant see himself as that? He saw himself as the one that follows. Yeah. Huh. Okay. So yeah. So it's you know who knows who Iwas actually meant was supposed to be the successor. I don't think right. that anyone any person. Elron so Hubbard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like I said, I mean, I think Parsons could have been a successor, but, you know, he got blown up. Yeah, I mean, Parsons, I think, was the one who probably came the closest in just the lifestyle completely of, and and what um, him and Marjorie Cameron and Mm -hmm. L. Ron Hubbard were doing. I mean, that was the Babylon working out there in the desert. Yeah, And you you see um, Parsons sort of had his own sort of view of, like, Babylon. and, And because Crowley, I mean, Crowley himself described Thelema is a solar phallic religion. You see, it's very much a religion developed by a gay guy. Like, you see a lot of... There, there's a lot of male focus, I guess. You mentioned that, that Crowley was gay. I found that interesting because, like, I... I mean, I would think of him as more bisexual, well, if anything. Because yeah. he was he was an incredible womanizer. And he had a, just as much a lust for... Probably more a lust for women, if anything. Yeah, I'm just using it as a blanket term, I guess. But yeah, gotcha. you're right. He would be, he'd be more of like a bisexual. Yeah. That's what we call him today. Yeah. Um, but he certainly had had male lovers, male lovers and female lovers, and he sure. had like right. a daughter too. So, right. um, but he, you definitely see that sort of phallic influence in like the OTO, especially like in the Gnostic Mass. Like, there's no female saints, and that that's a thing that I personally have a problem with because. Hmm. I was recently doing some research in like Hypatia of Alexandria and I was like, how is this woman not a Thelemic saint? Cause she's like a, like a martyr of like for paganism. Right. And yeah. I like looked it up and like, there's some kind of weaselly statement made by the current outer head, um, Hymenius Beta. Like he made some statement about it at a conference in like 94 and there hasn't really been any news about it since. Um, something about like how the Gnostic mass is like, like a male focused like ritual and that maybe someday, uh, you know, uh, a sister will write a female focused ritual that includes female saints. I'm like, just incorporate them because Crowley's whole like system, the whole system of Thelemic magic is about the like, and, and sex magic in general mm-hmm. is, is sort of the unification of opposites of opposite polarities. So why shouldn't the Gnostic mass be the same? But, I don't know. I don't have the right, I guess, unless I want to create a heretical organization Uh-oh. to uh, change that. <laughs> but hey, do what thou wilt, right? <laughs> that's it. So that's a good segue then. I mean, that the sex yeah. magic is probably the most uh, the most infamous part of the mythology surrounding the OTO to the public mind. It's the real juicy stuff. Yeah. So uh, can you kind of get into that and how... How Crowley says he discovered it, maybe, or how how uh, he first encountered it, and how it became what what role it became in the new OTO in in Thelema. Well, do we want to mention Randolph? Yeah, here yeah, definitely. Well? That's why I was, yeah, yeah. I mean, it basically just came from the writings of uh, Paschal Beverly Randolph, um, and you, you see, I think you see elements of uh, God, I'm trying to remember that other lady's name. Um, the whole. Um, comatose erotic comatose lucidity lady er- erotic comatose lucidity 
Yeah. What is her name? I'm, I feel so stupid. Um, you could just call her that. That's more interesting. So, okay. So Crowley was the one who came up with that phrase, but yeah, it's, uh, it was based on, okay. So it was kind of based on the writings of, uh, Randolph. I'm not gonna be able to find that lady's name. There was a lady in, in England, uh, who was big into sex magic and stuff, but, and she sort of had this whole organization, um, that practiced the erotic comatose lucidity thing. Um, what does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's basically, it's basically, you just get someone so horny that they like go into a trance. Oh, okay. (laughs) I mean, okay. So like, I'm going to lay on you guys. Um, the, uh, ultimate secret of the OTO here. Um, Uh so, so the ultimate, the ultimate sex magic secret is, um, that like you can power up your spells by jacking off. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. pretty much. It. All right. yeah. Everyone, everyone already knows that. That's what's so funny about it. Yeah. It's like the ultimate uh-huh. secret. Yeah, and it really makes such a big deal out of it. But like Grant Morrison was saying to do that with your sigils in like the nineties, and yeah, think, Donald Michael Craig wrote all about this in Modern Magic. I think so. Robert Anton Wilson said the final secret of the Illuminati is hashish and sex magic. Yeah, yeah. It's basically like yeah, sex is like a powerful thing. Orgasms are powerful, like ritual implements. Like the sex, sex magic stuff in the OTO and in general, sex magic in general isn't nearly as crazy as I think people tend to think when they think of that term. You know, they think of something very like weird and, and racy when it's really yeah. more like like, you know, you, you can power up a sigil by like jerking off and looking at it. Well, how, do, um, how does he how does he break with kind of the the tantric ideas and the kind of Eastern uh, indefinitely delaying orgasm things? Does he because orgasm is a is an important part of sex magic to Crowley, right? Yeah, well, okay, so that's where the erotocomatose lucidity thing comes in um, because it's sort of tantric in the sense that, like, basically, you just, you arouse someone to the point of, of, like, almost orgasm, and then you, like, leave them alone. And then you just keep doing this over and over until someone is just, like, completely exhausted. And... Like you, you kind of like let them get almost asleep and then you arouse them again and you keep doing this over and over again until they go into like a trance state. Um, it's kind of funny because you, you can just do this to yourself by like trying to read in bed and like, you know, kind of nodding off and then like, cause that's how yeah, I end up having okay. like out of body experiences and sleep paralysis a lot recently is okay. like, I, I figured out that I can do that to yeah. myself just by like you know, looking at my phone until I start like nodding off and then just forcing myself to stay awake and then, and then finally going to sleep. Um, but this uses like, I guess sort of a ritual, like sex element to it. Um, but the idea is that you're sort of, you're sort of, uh, delaying the actual orgasm, um, in order to produce this state. Now on, on the other side of things, like the whole, like, um, you know, draw a sigil and then look at it while you, while you jerk it thing um, <laughs> uses the orgasm sort of as the as the charge, the depth charge, you know. Uh, so in that sense, um, I'm not sure how that sense sort of relates to Tantra because the orgasm is sort of the, the means to an end there. Right. Um, 
now there, there is like some weird stuff. I think Crowley says that like you should eat the semen or something uh, to preserve the energy. Um, sacrifice you know, of a small male child. Yeah, yeah. You're going to make a sacrifice for a small male child into your mouth. Um, <laughs> okay. So, you know, yeah. so, you know, good luck with that, everyone. Uh, it's not, not something that I <laughs> am going to be super into, but, but I don't know, man. Whatever, whatever rocks your boat. You need to um, put some, like, funk music underneath yeah, this, really. man. We might, yeah, need yeah. Do, don't, don't, we might need to do a disclaimer at the beginning of this one here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, most of the most of the secret sex magic stuff is is literally like stuff that Donald Michael Craig talked about in Modern Magic. And like, well, like, when did he? This is like in the '80s when that book came out. So a lot of those things have been known about for a long time. And it um, seems like the OTO is doing a really good job now of uh, giving credit to PB Randolph. But at, mm-hmm. at the beginning, did did Crowley initially really give the credit as due? Probably not. Yeah. I mean, I'm not entirely sure, but knowing how egotistical Crowley was probably not. Um, I know Blavatsky hated. Oh yeah. Randall. Oh, yeah. Like she um, used some choice racial slurs to refer to him when he died. And then there's um, even the r- rumor that he, uh, he was shooting at her, uh, at her image when uh, he shot himself supposedly, and that she caused the, the bullet to turn around and hit him. You know, there's all kinds no. of weird shit. Yeah. I'm sure she would love people <laughs> to believe that. <laughs> Yeah, and it, interesting. Like he was here in Nashville too. Yeah, we point. actually we yeah. we found through uh, through our our uh, a guest we had, P.D. Newman, one of his writings that uh, I guess uh, uh, Randolph created the uh, short-lived uh, Brotherhood of Ulysses here in post-Civil War Nashville, but they only stayed a year. Probably got ran off by racists, but pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, it is of... wild when you think about it, man. Like, how did a black man in sort of racist post-Civil War, uh, deep American South, how was he doing like sex magic and forming these like esoteric brotherhoods and stuff and not like getting immediately killed? Well, like, I think it wasn't deep enough South really. That's what it is. This was, oh, you, okay. this was, you know, pretty strong union occupation. And, you mm-hmm. know, it was, I think. When was he here? Seven, I think 74. Okay. 1874. Democrats would have been back in control by then in Tennessee, but yeah, yeah I don't. But still, I think it I was it, it would have been safer here than say like further south. Yeah, Mississippi, yeah, like or, yeah, 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 something like that, right? And then it's he, still wild. I mean, he he absolutely. really is a person that that really deserves like his own biopic or miniseries or something because he's he's a character that's not really that well known in well, the occult world. Yeah, and like that uh, that Robert Anton Wilson quote I used, he was also a uh, a marijuana importer. Mm-hmm. I think we owe a lot of the modern magical tradition to the work of P.B. Randolph, and it's something that has gotten sort of left behind. And, yeah, I mean, I don't know what's going to change that, but I, well, I'm glad that more people know who he is now. It does seem like there's a whole lot more scholarly focus, and uh, like I said, you know, with all the stuff I was encountering from official OTO stuff about him, it seems like you know mm-hmm. everyone is really trying to trying to make good and really uh, give credit where it's due. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk a little bit about the Kabbalah in association with with the Lima. Because, okay. you know, I, I read um, a few years ago, I read a book, uh, well, the the graphic novel series on uh, Promethea, which is Alan Moore. Have you ever have you ever read that? Oh, I think I have. I read yeah. um, I read his whole like Lovecraft cycle. OK. Of comics. Um well, it's interesting that you talk about Hypatia because that's exactly where 
it actually begins was like the with the murder of Hypatia. But Promethea yeah. basically is like more really laying out his all his occult philosophy, which is really steeped in Crowley. And I guess steeped in Thelema too, but um, you know the Kabbalah really has quite a an interesting role in that. So, what's the, like, all the different levels of Kabbalah and what's all yes. that? What's all the what's the Thelemic stance on all that stuff? I mean, it, it, the Kabbalah is pretty intrinsically tied to Western esotericism. Yeah. Um. And it, I mean, yeah, like we we use. Um, like it's used, it's probably most of the stuff that I do that involves Kabbalah and involves like the Sephiroth probably comes from Golden Dawn more than it does the Lema. But I think that anybody who is a Western occultist in this day and age will probably do work that involves the Kabbalah. Um, I think it's a useful way to represent, um, like not only like sort of the universe, but the human mind. Um, but it's also just, um, I mean, we use it in different rituals. Like when we, we conjure specific angels, like you can conjure the like angel of the Sephiroth, uh, that you're trying to use, or you're trying to like sort of get the energies of, um, there's also the element of path working that's done in some OTO lodges. And I think, uh, the OTA Runyon's OTA also does this where you, travel through the 22 paths of the tree of life right uh, sort of through active imagination uh, and in using the tarot associations because that's the other thing like uh you have tarot associations that go along with the paths of the tree of life as well and that's considered the the, the western esoteric kabbalah right yeah yeah i mean there's there's a big difference between i think like jewish kabbalah like actual jewish kabbalah and Western esoteric Kabbalah. I mean, there's a whole history there that I'm not super familiar with. I couldn't really speak with authority about. But from what I understand, like Western esoteric Kabbalah is is quite different than what we like what a, what a Jewish person would think of as Kabbalah. Right, and it has all those all those associations with the tarot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all the different the different paths and the sephiro are united to both zodiacal and tarot yeah that's a big part of promethea as well there's a lot of association with tarot and there's a and and with kabbalah and there's also this concept in here with crowley's concept of crossing the abyss yeah it's sort of the the empty space uh between what is the names of those spheres it's like kether and chesed i think I'm, ter- I'm a terrible is it, is it, t- is it Tiferath? I'm looking at the. I'm looking at a picture of it. I've got a pretty rad Golden Dawn and yeah, Anakian magic book here. Kether is the first level. Tiferath is um, the sixth, and there is an empty space between those two, which is looks like somehow it's called Dath D A A T H. Yeah, I'm trying to find a diagram now, and I can't just get a normal diagram. Google has to show me all of this like weird crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's between Kether and Tiferath. So you have sort of this empty space there, and that is what is referred to sort of as the abyss uh, in the AA system. It's sort of what you have to, you, like doing pathworking, you have to sort of do a ritual to cross that abyss. And at least in Crowley's idea, like what lives in that abyss is, um, you know, the demon Karanzen. And 
if you fail to cross the abyss, you are kind of utterly destroyed. Um, what that means, I don't know, maybe you go insane or something. Um, mm. But that if you're able to cross the abyss successfully, then you have like basically become like a true magician. Is it that um, you've kind of really come into being incarnated? Like you're coming yeah, into reality further? I, I think the way it's thought is that like, yeah, it's in order to sort of realize. So this this ties into the whole idea of like the holy guardian angel. So in order to kind of make contact with your HGA or fully realize your HGA, you have to cross the abyss because it's kind of what separates you from the heavens. If that makes sense. Like it's sort of the barrier between uh, the earthly realms and sort of the, the heavenly realms and what lies like beyond the tree of life, which is like if you're looking at a, uh, a diagram that's like iron so or light without end. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of like it's almost like an initiatory kind of thing. Like you have to be able to cross the abyss to become fully realized. Is that associated with too with Crowley's concept about facing demons and to get to, I guess, the divine? I suppose I, I don't. Yeah, I guess it's the idea that that Karanzen and or like whatever is in the abyss is sort of the dweller on the threshold. Hmm. It's like a test that's put before someone. Yeah. To that that prevents them from self actualizing until they're able to face it. And I mean, you could see this in a purely metaphorical sense in like what people have to go through uh, just in their own lives. Like we all have, you know, demons that are, you know, traumas or things from our past that we have to eventually deal with or we'll never be able to like move on with our lives. Right. And you could see like the crossing of the abyss is sort of the magical version of that. So there's almost kind of like a there's there's almost like a psychological aspect to all this stuff then. Yeah, yeah, there is. And, and Crowley goes in Crowley's Goetia, he makes this statement that like all the demons in the Goetia are sort of aspects of the human brain or psychology, uh, which he knows better than to say that. Um, so I've never really been able to understand why he said that in that, because that's, I mean, anybody who's worked with him knows that isn't true. Um, you can look at sort of the path working and stuff that happens on the tree of life in sort of like this Jungian, like psychological sense. Um, but I also sort of hesitate in that regard because I think there is like a real external reality to the things you do in, in like a magical tradition. Like it isn't necessarily all just in your head. Um, and that, I was, I don't know, I was going to bring up the idea of the cliff off or sort of the reverse tree, which is something that like Kenneth Grant goes into a lot. But this idea that as sort of a twisted reflection of the tree of life, you have the cliff off, which is sort of like, instead of like an angel being in charge of each sphere, there's like a demon in charge of each sphere. And it, it sort of exists as the reflection of the goodness of the world that is represented by the tree of life. Um, and his idea was that you can travel to the cliff off through what he called the tunnels of set, which are kind of like tunnels um, in that sort of negative space of Doth that lead into the cliff off. And that's sort of where like, like you see this reflected in like Twin Peaks because Twin Peaks is basically like 
one long Kenneth Grant fan fiction TV series. <laughs> I finally got done with the new series, man. It was after what you after what you told us before, man. It was uh, yeah. It all made sense. Yeah, yeah, it really and is. And I've it's been reading like, some Kenneth Grant too, so it was like, wow. Yeah, <laughs> it's literally just Kenneth Grant, like the TV show, and uh, it's sort of this idea that like the demons and and evil spirits and stuff kind of trans Saturnian entities, if you want to call them that come from like the, the cliff off. They're sort of the reverse of the tree. And and somehow flannel man is involved with all this. I'm not quite sure. Probably how the flannel um, lumberjacks are and the Trinity explosion. And well, and then you, you touched on earlier the, uh, your HGA, the holy mm-hmm. guardian angel what's the role of that because that's that that's pretty important to thelema isn't it that you find your holy guardian angel yeah yeah that's primarily i would say that that's probably if you're going to want to be a magician that's your first big quest is to make contact with your hga gain the knowledge and conversation of your hga now what the hga is i think you're going to find a lot of opinions on that um you can kind of see it as a reflection of your higher self or a, a view in a, like a perfected state. Um, or you can literally just see it as, um, you know, literally like your own personal spirit uh, that is like sort of given to you by the Lord of the universe to kind of help you along and, and help you mature as a, as a human being and, and fully realize your own self. Um, I think, you know, the, the whole the whole phrase guardian angel, I think, is wrapped up in a lot of especially like pop culture stuff from the nineties. Um, but it's not entirely wrong. I mean, I, I feel like sometimes when maybe you have a little flash of intuition or you that you hear a little voice that tells you, you know, maybe you should take a, take this other road, you know, and then you avoid a car accident or something because of that, you know, that very well could possibly be your HGA kind of whispering over your ear, uh, just like in, just like in a Hallmark original movie. Um, yeah, I, but, I like the idea personally, and uh, yeah, you know, I'm not. I haven't really. Uh, I'm not usually the one to 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 say, yeah, that's what it was. But uh, usually, mm-hmm. you know, when I've really skirted some uh, potential tragedies, you know, family mm-hmm. members usually, you know, use that, and I'm not going to reject it all the way. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a useful way to think about it. Um, I think you can think about your HGA in, in whatever way you want, um, but the idea isn't necessarily a, uh, a Christian or even a Judy, uh, like a, a Jewish one. It's it's something that goes back to the idea of like your own sort of personal genius. Um, I think it goes back to like sort of Greek ideas. Um, and, and there's like different processes for contacting your HGA. Uh, one of them is like the Abermelon operation, uh, which is in the, the book of Abermelon. Um, it's a very lengthy and involved procedure that takes, uh, like 13 months or something to complete. Um, you have to rent like a special house for it that has like windows in specific places. Yeah, this is, is, this is what is in, um, a dark song, the film, the movie. <laughs> yeah. They use, they use yeah. the term Abermelon in that. What they're actually doing in that movie isn't anything like the Abermelon, but, uh, okay. uh but I guess the idea of it is, is sort of similar. The spirit of it is captured. Um, yeah. The idea that you're basically going to spend the next year of your life like an intense prayer and, and ritual. Um, now, and I really do love that movie, and I love the uh, depiction at the end. I don't want to spoil it for anybody oh, who hasn't seen yeah. it, but uh, mm-hmm. the ending is, is incredible. Yeah. Um, it, it captures a lot of that same. And, it, and there's certain parts of, uh, of that movie that really capture the um, – 
the feelings that come along with doing ritual. So I, I thought it was very good in that regard. But there's different ways of doing it. Like some people do the abermelon. Um, like Aaron Leach is pretty famous online for apparently doing the whole abermelon and getting in contact with his HGA that way. Um, there are other people like you can kind of see Iwas as Crowley's HGA. And Crowley famously didn't complete the abermelon. He, the whole reason he rented Bolskine House uh, in Loch Ness was to do the abermelon. Um, he got like halfway through it and gave up. Um, but hey, he still made contact with Iwa, so uh, worked out. Um, I, I don't think you have to do the abermelon. That's, I don't think that's the only way to contact your HGA. Um, um, but I don't know. I'll have to report back to you guys on this because I'm in the process of doing this right now myself. Um, doing the abramelon? Not the abramelon, but like oh. the HGA work. Oh, so, okay. so it, there's a series of steps that I'm following um, based on advice from various people. One from my mentor, which basically involves um, <clears throat> like it's important to first figure out your HGA's name. Um, and Scott's method uh, that he taught me was a, div a divinatory method, um, which were basically. Uh, you do a series of rituals and then you uh, draw cards from the top of a tarot deck that you've shuffled. And um, if you, if the first card you get is a major arcana or trump card, you keep going. Uh, if you get another trump card, you keep going. And you just keep going as long as you have trump cards until you hit a pip card. Um, and the idea is that the letters that sort of – because each, each major arcana – has a Hebrew letter associated with it. According, like if you look through Crowley 777 and it has all the associations. Um, and then you can look at those Hebrew letters and say, okay, well, these are the, these make up the name of my HGA. So, um, and then being able to draw at least three, you need at least three. If you, if you get like say two trump cards and then you hit a pip card, um, you use the pip card as an indication of like what is standing in your way, like what's preventing you from contacting your HGA. Um, so if I pull, if I pull two cards, mm -hmm. they're a trump card, and then I pull like, and I guess the pip you mean the minor arcana. Yeah, the minor. So like uh, so, you know, three of swords or something. Yeah. So if you so, but if you keep pulling the trump card, how many? Do you pull before you know the name? How do you derive the name? You, you need at least three. At least three. Um, and then you basically just go look up the Hebrew letter that goes along with that uh, with that card. And that's from the number of the card? Yeah, it's from the number of the card. And so you use that. You use basically those Hebrew letters to get the name. So um, I, I accomplished this successfully. Um, it's actually surprisingly unlikely to get three major arcana in a row. Okay. Uh, you know, it seems like only, I've heard this somewhere before, but I can't I place have, it. I don't know if I you told, told you me this. I might have told you at Paramania. Okay. Like I, I hadn't successfully done it yet at Paramania, yeah. but when I got back, um, I just woke up one morning and I felt this really strong urge to pull three tarot cards, and I was like, "Huh." I just, you know, just on a whim decided ah, I feel like I should really pull three tarot cards. I shuffled my deck. I pulled three cards, and it was three trump cards and i didn't even think about it at first i was like just doing a reading based on on those three cards so what did and you pull I, well can't tell you You can't tell me to, okay i have right. to kill you <laughs> <laughs> no i don't know um i'm a little superstitious about it i actually don't know some people say it doesn't matter 
my mentor personally advises me against Saying, giving the yeah. name of my uh, HGA. He says, keep it to yourself. Okay. So, um, but I will tell you some some interesting elements around it. And if somebody can deduce it from that, then whatever. But um, the three cards I pulled, I didn't even realize it at first. And then I was like, oh, holy crap, these are three Trump cards. And I wasn't even meaning to do it. And I was like, I, I pulled them. So I figured out the name based on those three Trump cards. And I looked at like the, the uh, like what those Hebrew letters meant and looked at the name. And then I realized that the name was actually referring to a specific order of angels. Like, you know, the different orders of angels, like uh, dominion, thrones, whatever. Like, it was in the name, like what order it belonged to. And I was like, wow, that's weird. And then I looked up the name in some of my grimoires and I found its name in, I think, the Hygromantia as like, um, and it was an angel of a specific season and it happened to be the beginning of that season when I pulled those three cards. And see it all, and then like I did the dramatry on the name, and it came up interesting. It was like everything around it, everything around the name that I pulled had interesting synchronicities, and that's how I sort of knew. I was like, okay, that's the name, that's what its name is. Um, and so now I've been trying to do the work of like actually getting it on the phone, which is the tough part. Um, so what's been advised for me to do is kind of like do daily, uh, like daily recitations of the headless, right. Or what, what I think, uh, Crowley and Mathers refer to as the bornless ritual. Mm-hmm. Um, and like kind of solar work. Um, so yeah, it just involves like a daily ritual practice and then, you know, uh, petitions for it to either appear to me in a crystal or appear to me in the dream, in a dream or something just to make contact with me. So far, nothing that I can say, uh, nothing dramatic has occurred. Like, I don't, but I'm also not really sure what to expect because some people talk about it like they're hearing a voice in their head. Like, that's separate from their own internal monologue, like clear as day, as if there was somebody standing behind you and, and, and talking into your ear. I haven't heard that. Um, I've been doing some crystal gazing because uh, I don't know. I think I showed you guys in the in the Where Did the Road Go Slack um, yeah. some of the um, implements I've been working on. So I've been building sort of the full ritual apparatus for the uh, drawing spirits into crystals operation. And that is part of the, the apparatus that I'm, I'm attempting to use for my HGA contacts. Let's talk a little bit about the some of these holidays okay. that are important in Thelema. And which I understand that also tonight you were supposed to be involved in like the a marking of the astrological sign of Leo. Yeah, it's a it's a thing that that Scott Stinwick does. Um, it's a it's a ritual called the Via Solis uh, Elixir ritual that that he wrote. He created it, so it's not anything that you're going to find in any book. Um, but it is all available. The text of all these rituals is available via his website, uh, which is at uh, is it Anael? Um, yeah, Ananael.blogspot.com. 
Uh, it's a n a n a e l dot blogspot dot com. But uh, he's actually got the Via Solis Leo Elixir Right um, Year Three article up from um, yesterday. He put it up on Monday. Um, but he basically, when it changes over into the new zodiac sign, so it just changed over into Leo about a week ago. Um, we do a rite, a ritual where we sort of we conjure the angel of the zodiac that corresponds with the zodiac sign that's currently in play and we ask them to enchant an elixir uh so usually like a cup of wine with the specific energies or occult virtues of that zodiac sign so like uh so like for scorpio it's necromancy and the ability to to speak with spirits um, I think for, for others, it's like, you know, the ability to travel out of body. Uh, there's another that's like practical enchantment. These are all the powers that I think are pulled from 777 or maybe, or maybe it's, um, it's one of Crowley's books. It, it may, I think it's in 777 in the tables. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a ritual that doesn't like, like I said, you're not going to find it in any book. Uh, it's, it's kind of Scott's own thing, but it's very cool. And it's like a group ritual. So usually there's at least four or five people. Uh, sometimes we've had groups as big as like 15 and, uh, everyone kind of does it together. We all take a drink from the cup and, uh, I've felt some pretty dramatic things during these rituals. Like in particular, I think the Virgo one that we did last year, uh, there was a lot of energy in that ritual. Like I felt like I was going to pass out at certain points because of how intense it was. And in some others, like when we did the Pisces ritual earlier this year, um, I probably had the strongest physical sensations uh, of like an angel being there that I've ever felt. Um, so the angel of, of Pisces is Emnitziel. And there was a point uh, when we were, right after we did the conjuration, where we're all kind of standing around, you know, saying the angel's name and, and trying to conjure them <clears throat> when I got this really strong sensation of like someone being in the room, like outside of the circle, like, you know, that I couldn't see. And I actually felt something brush up against my back and, and I could like track it with my eyes, like walking around us, like pacing around the circle. And it was like, I couldn't see anything, but you know, it's like, I could tell it was there. You know, I could tell exactly where it was standing and it, it felt very warm and like friendly. It was, it was really super interesting. Um, and I, I felt some, some similar things during other ones. Um, it's really odd. I don't know if you, have you ever seen the movie, um, wings of desire? No, I've heard you okay. mention it though recently. Yeah. So it's like a, it's a German film that's kind of about like angels and stuff uh, the, the Nick Cage movie city of angels, um, from the nineties was a remake of this. Oh, okay. Movie. Yeah. I was wondering about that. Cause I heard you mention that on where to the rodeo recently. And I thought that sounds a lot like the, mm -hmm. that, that, um, I can't remember the name of that movie. Yeah. City of angels. City of angels. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a part in wings of desire where, uh, one of the characters can tell cause people can't normally see the angels unless they're dying. But there's a scene where uh, a character can can sort of sense that he's there. And he's like, and he says, you know, like, you know, hey, friend, 
Like, I can tell you're there. I can't see you, but I know you're there. And that's sort of the same way I felt, you know? Like, I couldn't see it, but it's just like you just know something's standing there. It's very, very interesting. Um, but it's not necessarily a thalamic thing, like I mentioned before. Uh, for, for thalema, you know, the, kind of the big dates are like the equinoxes, basically. Mm-hmm. So you have, uh, like, when I was in London uh, during the spring equinox, um, I actually met up with some OTO people uh, from the lodge there, from MF Lodge. And we like all went out uh, to a bar and had dinner, and it was a lot of fun. Usually, they had some sort of like feasting to celebrate the equinoxes. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I guess like I kind of want to get into what's what's some of the lasting uh, cultural impact. In uh, I know there was this period where after Crowley, things were kind of get sorted back out. Uh, things did kind of get sorted back out to a degree. And then, um, of course, the whole psychedelic revolution happened and this mm-hmm. kind of other magical revival on into uh, the 70s and 80s with the industrial culture and uh, Temple of Psychic Youth and other things like that, where you still have this lasting impact of Crowley and the OTO's work. Um, I guess if you could just like sum up some of that and what do you think the lasting impact for the future is going to be? Yeah, I mean, I think you see it on the edges. Um, I think the biggest impact of Crowley's work and sort of his his associates was probably Gerald Gardner's Wicca movement. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when people think of magic, like generally in today's, you know, when a normie right, talks right. about magic, they're probably thinking about Wicca. They may even refer to it as like Wicca or whatever, uh, which if people don't know, it's basically a system that was just created by... Uh, Gerald Gardner, who was a colleague of Crowley's, and it, it's based on a lot of material Crowley gave Gardner to work with. So a lot of the stuff in Wicca has direct parallels with um, like Golden Dawn magic. Um, Gardner made it his own in some ways, like we said, you know, in the whole and and Duno. The thing, the thing about it, though, it's very like neutered. Like there's, there's the whole idea of the threefold law. Right. And it's like, let me tell you guys, there's no such thing as a threefold law. <laughs> yeah. Like, it doesn't exist, okay? Like, if you need to curse somebody, uh, you can curse somebody. You, nothing's going to happen to you. Um, but I think, it, I'd honestly say, like, as far as cultural things go, like you mentioned, like, uh, like psychic youth, um, I, I think you see elements of Crowley in culture, like, you know, with the Beatles and stuff, but... I still feel like the biggest impact was in in Wicca and how much it was a part of the sort of magical landscape of the 90s, where it was kind of when I grew up. Yeah, um, that was a huge thing then. Yeah, I remember. Mm-hmm. And then later, um, it's actually interesting. Like right now, there's actually a TV show on CBS uh, all about Jack Parsons. And it includes like scenes and stuff uh, that are supposed to be at, like the Agape Lodge. Um it heavily incorporates like the OTO into it. And it's, it's really wild to hear someone on TV say, you know, do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's on, I say TV, it's on like CBS all access. like right. their app. But. Well, I think more and more people are just like, I think they're just like us, you know, these screenwriters in Hollywood, they're more familiar mm-hmm. with this stuff now because so many books yeah. have been written about it. And so it's just so much more yeah. out in the open. I think mm-hmm. now than it ever has been. And there's really just been lately this kind of low key kind of occult revival 
that has gone on where it's just becoming more and more, I think, acceptable. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, you're totally right about there being sort of um, a magical revival going on right now. Um, probably is a backlash. It, it's sort of, I think, the the wave of... Um, maybe this is... Maybe I'm off base here, but like, if you think about the satanic panic stuff that was going on yeah, in, in the 80s and early 90s, I feel like the current revival, occult revival going on, is like the ultimate result of all that. Because I think those that satanic panic stuff... Um, spread the ideas yes. of like occultism right. more than it prevented anything because it just made <laughs> yeah. people curious. So. Right, right. Yeah, there's um there's this there's this pastor out there that um he all he does is just constantly talk about Crowley and all his uh and all his stuff. Oh wow. Just I'm like sure he, there's he, gonna be some young Thelemites made from the yeah. congregation. Right. Yeah. He's he's always talking about uh he's always talking about um Al- Alistair Crowley. A famed occultist, Alistair Crowley. That's how he, that's how he <laughs> talks, and so it was like you just like in your mind all the time. It just became like this yeah. joke whenever we'd listen to it at work. You know that uh, <laughs> we'd always talk about famed occultist Alistair Crowley, and it's just so so breathy, you know. But I think honestly too, and this will sound really Christian panicky of me, but mm. I, I I honestly think like the Harry Potter stuff actually had something to do with some of this stuff too, because it made that. Mm. I mean, you you got some really heady concepts in some of those books in those movies especially like the philosopher stone yeah 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 i think it made people curious about magic well, that, and, was, and that was a big thing with like the the religious right it was just like harry potter is gonna take your kids well i think it might have i mean you know that's <laughs> to an extent yeah yeah, yeah yeah but that's the thing though when you when you forbid stuff or you warn people about it. All you do is right. you give it power. Right. You give it allure and mystique. Right. Right. If, if they really wanted to do it, they would just. Pre- if they really wanted their kids to be Christian, they would just pretend to not be, and yeah, like smoke that- and drink openly, and just like smoke weed, <laughs> and just like, their kids will be and, and talk about like you know, hey, I'm gonna go out and have lots of sex and worship Satan, and then their kids will be will be Christian. You know, like that's yeah, it's reverse psychology, man. Just re- rebellion against what your parents do. Yeah, no, I actually heard somebody making uh, making a joke about that on a podcast the other day where they were like, yeah. all of these like kind of woke parents now who are like <laughs> going to try to raise their kids gay or like raise their kids, so, like, you know, to try to make them like, um, uh-huh. like that, you know, and then like all of those kids are just going to become like huge Republicans. It's I've, a, I've it's seen a it backlash. Yeah. I've seen it firsthand. Uh, I know, I know this guy whose dad was like super cool hippie Buddhist guy and now he's like... <laughs> Super alt right, like fringy edge lord, like totally. Opposite. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, this goes back so far though, because like, um, a lot of the modern grimoire tradition, especially the Goetia, the Lamegaton in general, a lot of the stuff in there comes from Reginald Scott's discovery of witchcraft, which was originally written as a thing to discourage people from doing magic. Yeah. It was supposed to like kind of like lay out how silly and ridiculous and untrue magic was. Well, my own journey, uh, I mean, I really got into the occult. My first uh, my first uh, uh, exposure was really in this kind of uh, the 90s conspiratorial world and anti Masonic New World Order. Mumbo yeah, Jumbo. I right. Mean, that's really where right. I like first learned what the OTO yeah. was, what this was, what that mm-hmm, was, mm-hmm. What, you know. 
And so it's, I think it's a, it's a path that can lead you, yeah, to it. Yeah, definitely. Well, there's this, there's an idea, I think, in some of this stuff where if you know about, like, just like the, the, the concept of like Freemasonry, mm-hmm. like the, the whole idea of the Cowan, you know, like if you know about it, then you are one of the illuminated ones yourself because you know the inner, you know somewhat of the inner workings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no real secret. Even anymore. if you're ostensibly speaking against it, you're still yeah. you still know it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can, and that's the thing. There are no real secrets in the internet age. Like, if you're really curious about what happens during the OTO initiations, you can go find all of the documents online. Like, I haven't looked at them because I want to be surprised when I go through the initiation. It doesn't seem like a whole lot of fun if I know what's going going to happen to me. Yeah. Um. But you can find it all, and I'm sure you can find Masonic texts, and you can figure out, like, you know, what what happens in Masonic initiations and stuff. It's like, there are no more secrets. Right. The only secrets would be more personalized things that you actually experience when you go through these. You can get exactly. morals and dogma on the internet. Things that, things that are probably less, uh, you know, that you really can't write about. Things that aren't, that maybe don't relate too well to... Uh, to language and stuff like that yeah definitely going through it is going to be leagues different than just reading about it ren in the oto seal um what's -hmm. the significance of the dove you know actually my girlfriend asked the same question to uh harper feist um a couple weeks ago when lon maliquette was in town um and i can't remember what she said well, what what is all what's all in the seal? Well, it's got um, the shape of it is like a what is that called exactly? It's like the intersection of two circles. Uh, what is that called, Adam? Like the Venn diagram shape? <laughs> is that yeah, you, like, are, are an ellipse? Yeah, is that what it is? Is there a significance to that? And first, like, well, I can tell you kind of what it looks like. A little yeah, bit. yeah, <laughs> I mean, of course. <laughs> It, it does have a quite a, quite a vaginal yeah. sort of uh, look yeah. to it. I let you say it. I mean, I guess like okay, so this would be my interpretation of it. Like okay, so you've got like the rosy cross at the bottom, right? Yeah. You've got like yeah. a rose and a cross, so right. you've got the Rosicrucian element there. Yep. And then you have uh, sort of a dove, which, in my view, would sort of represent like purity, or maybe sort of like goodwill. Or like spirit, and, spirit descending yeah, or into matter. Spirit descending, yeah. And then you have, um, you know, the eye of Horus up above, sort of probably, you know, representing um, the Aeon of Horus, and Thelema is sort of the, uh, dude, the, the law of the Aeon of Horus. That's totally a vagina, bro. The whole thing, <laughs> like oh, yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, well, you gotta have, you gotta I, I just, I just looking at it, I'm just like. Hmm. So the, the the eye is a is another part, yeah. At the very top? The top, yeah. That's another top. That's eye. another part, there. Yeah, not to. Uh... <laughs> well, I mean, it's cool though with with this stuff because Crowley was so pro, uh, so, you know, so sex positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely. a good way to put I mean, it. You look at Crowley's personal seal too. You know, it's like the, uh, like the six 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 thing where it's got the star of Babylon. And it's got what looks like three circles and like a moon and the sun, like symbols for the moon and the sun. But if you really look at it, you realize what you're looking at is like, like a dick yeah. in balls. Like uh-huh. looking at I've seen it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 
Yeah. I mean, a, and, and his and his tarot deck is like really. There's a lot of pornographic stuff in his tarot deck. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people take Crowley too seriously. I mean, the the guy I, didn't I take agree. himself that seriously. I agree. Yeah. You know, like he loved riling people up. You know, he well, was the, like kind of like a first internet troll. You know, like well, he really just loved like. Right. He was a trickster. Yeah. And, and talking about that that pastor that I was telling you about that just rails against Crowley and like turns him mm-hmm. into like the, the 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 most evil man that ever lived. Like he's worse mm-hmm. than Hitler or Stalin. You know, these guys that killed actually did kill <laughs> millions of people, but somehow yeah. Crowley. You know, this the, he's really to me Crowley was like his best publicist. Everything he did was the greatest thing ever. And yeah, yeah. but he was really just kind of a charlatan. And he, I mean, he 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 had a kind of a towards the end. I mean, you know, he was just a sad he just kind of a sad sack really he died yeah. a heroin addict yeah well, i mean the drug addiction problems though wasn't yeah. it i mean yeah wasn't he self-medicating well, for actual health reasons too yeah I, as far as i understand but All i the think he syphilis did syphilis probably that he <laughs> <laughs> i think he did actually have like issues with addiction and stuff yeah but, you know he's a diary he's of a, a human... drug fiend yeah mm-hmm. but you know i see like i see crowley as like a human figure you know he's got problems and he's problematic and he says some crappy things in some of his works um you know he's not he's not the superman you know he's just a human being with his own flaws and i like i don't think he was so much a charlatan in the sense that like he was i think a skilled and like very knowledgeable magician um you know when he talks about his his uh, goetic work like i believe that he experienced what he experienced um, I, I do think he was quite talented and, you know, like the book of the law is, uh, you know, I see it as a really inspired text. So I think Crowley left like a really valuable legacy to Western occultism. And like, I, I definitely respect him for that. And, you know, even in Thelema, it's not like people revere him as like a saint or a prophet or whatever. Sure. Like we crack jokes about Crowley yeah. at the lodge, yeah. you know, he's like, I think you got to the, the man had a sense of humor. He's really funny. Like if you read his personal letters mm-hmm. and stuff, he's hilarious. He's kind of like very catty and um, like, you know, and he would say things like, like you said before, like making a sacrifice of a like perfect male child, like every single day for like the past year or whatever. He's really just making a joke about like jerking off, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, yeah. he would include stuff like that because he knew that, that, hysterical people would read it yeah and would like totally misinterpret what he was talking about because he's like and and not get that he's making a joke and then raise hell about it and that only made him that only spread his his fame and his uh you know in or i guess in fame yeah well i mean whatever you think about him he he did he was an iconoclast and he did really uh serve as a catalyst for uh dawning of a new age however you want to see that good or bad yeah exactly and if if you need any like good reason for liking crowley just uh take it that uh william butler yates hated crowley mm-hmm. he didn't want him to be a member of the golden dawn right. and um yates was a like a fascist and a creep so Anyone that Yates didn't like, you can probably count on being like pretty cool, and you would way rather like hang out with them than hang out with Yates. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to leave it, Ren. Um, let's uh, <laughs> tell everybody where the people can find you. Um, 
And yes. if they want to find out about their local OTO lodge. Yeah, so um, you can find me at uh, liminalroom.com. I run a blog there. Um, and if you're interested in the OTO, uh, if you live in Minneapolis or in the Twin Cities area, uh, you know, come out to the ritual night uh, every Tuesday. Um, just look up Leaping Laughter, Leaping Laughter Oasis. Uh, it's pretty easy to find. Um, otherwise, um, you know, just Google local OTO Lodge. I think the the Grand um, U.S. Lodge website has a listing of all the U.S. lodges. And, um, you know, I, I can't vouch for every... I think every lodge is kind of different. Um, some lodges are more focused on, like, different things. Like, probably just depending on who runs the lodge. Um, I know when I look at calendars for some of the lodges, like the one in Atlanta... Like, it doesn't seem nearly as busy as Leaping Laughter does. Uh, but, again, that's probably a consequence of Leaping Laughter having a lot of, like, kind of practicing magicians as members. Um, so, like, again, I can't vouch for the quality of your local OTO lodge. Uh, but there might be some cool people there. And if you're just looking for someone to talk to about, you know, if you if you like the occult, if you, if you want to learn magic or you just want somebody to talk to about this stuff that won't think you're insane or a Satan worshiper. Um, yeah, go check out, check out your local OTL lodge. Cause there are probably people there who are friendly and will love to have conversations with you about this kind of stuff. Okay. Excellent. Cool. Thanks a lot, man. All right. Rin, yeah, stay, so. stay on the line. We always love having you on, man. Um, but stay on the line for us. So we're going to close this section out and, uh, we'll be back to close out the show as usual on good paranormal. If you want your HR team to hire top talent for your company, tell them about ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your company's job posts, so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right. All right. That was a great interview with... Ren Collier. It's absolutely epic. Yeah. We always love having Ren on. He's one of our favorite guests. And we did another, like, man, what was that? Like 45 minutes to an hour? Yeah. Patreon show? Where Adam gets a little open. Yeah, I got a little personal in this one. I don't normally talk about my personal life, but uh, I, I got a little more personal in, in this Patreon episode. We so. got a magical perspective of it. Yeah, we did. And my mind is, is pretty blown right now. So... If you want to hear that, you need to go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal. And you can join for as little as one buck. Yes, that's one, one buck. buck. Not one dollar, but one buck, as I've said many times before. So any insights to any things we discussed with Ren that you uh, found particularly interesting? Everything was just real interesting. I mean, we, we really uh, got really, really deep and in an overview of just not only OTO and Crowley, but magic in general. And it was yeah. in magic in the history, uh, 
of a lot of this this stuff and um man just all over the place it was epic yeah i agree um a lot of that stuff is really some of it's really hard to to get my mind around it we definitely did not cover everything i mean there was plenty of stuff that we could have also talked about and we got a little more into in the patreon segment and not only did i get personal but we got a little more into like synchro mysticism and synchronicity Mm -hmm. and the role that that plays and how that's how that's a part of magic yeah and uh basically it uh revolves around this angel summoning ritual that uh, I participated in in Paramania and uh, some of the things that followed along in my life from there. So if you want to listen to that, that's it uh, on our Patreon. So guys, we announced last week that we have the Strange Realities Conference coming up on October 19th. Strange Realities. And we will say that we have a good cast of characters that are going to be there we got tim banal timothy renner joshua cutchin guy malone mark anthony wyatt um i've actually added him as well and our good friend joe is going to be presenting awesome so uh, that's going on october 19th and you can get your tickets at strangerealitiesconference.com and we'd love to see you there guys um it's only 30 bucks but at the door it's 40 dollars. yeah <laughs> so you, you, using a little bit of that psychology on you guys to get you know, to to get to to, get to the, the cheapest thing that you will have to pay to come down here to Nashville to be with us is to actually get into the door. You know, you're sitting there listening to Conspiranormal, and yeah, you may just absentmindedly be doing the dishes or hanging out, and you know, you may you may feel pretty good and relaxed, and you know, then you might. Uh, Get on your computer and or your cell phone, and you may find yourself going to strangerealitiesconference.com. Then you may even find yourself purchasing one or two or three tickets pre-sale at only $30. I mean, if you got a family, you know, 30 bucks. Bring the whole if, family. if you got a family, bring the whole family. We, we will not we, engage in explicit yeah. uh, sex magic discussions in the panels, I don't think, this time. No, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. Ren may try to be there, but uh, I don't know if we're going to talk, talk about that or not. But, can, hey, come on, guys. UFOs, you know, aliens. We've got Tim Banal talking about Flat Earth. You know, you guys. Find you, out how to see ghosts. How to see ghosts. Yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah, we, we got, we got. You know, and and also I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give somewhat of a presentation. I don't know about what yet, but it's gonna happen. So if you guys hey, and a live debut. podcast recording, yeah, yeah, you know, that we're gonna do. So the first live interactive, yeah, normal podcast. All right, guys. So come join us. Come party with us in Nashville, October nineteenth, twenty nineteen. StrangeRealitiesConference.com. dot com. All right, all right, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to close out the show. Next time, we're going to do, I believe, I'm not quite sure yet. I don't know if this is going to be the next show or the show after. But because uh, I'm trying to reschedule Dr. Heather Lynn because we were supposed to have her come on. But uh, we do gonna, we're, we're going to do this uh, Woke in the 90s roundtable. And I've got Aaron Gullius, Red Pill Junkie, and Adam Go Rightly going to be here for that hashtag woke in the 90s hashtag woke in the 90s that was my idea yeah i don't quite know what we're going to do but it's just it'll probably be just be a grab back and i'm really loving this man like we yeah, have we have a, a table we have table, you yeah. know like we we can put our we can put our computer our, our laptops on it we got mr we got like mr easy street candle in the middle here you know i mean and uh other assorted items 
and the book of the law sitting sitting right here um yeah we're real podcasters we got a table yeah we got yeah, real we're real podcasters have tables we're not doing the couch thing anymore no, no, not not falling lethargic. asleep on the couch you know not holding a beer anymore this is this is real true professional podcasting guys so thank you so much guys for listening and we'll be back next week on Conspiranormal StrangeRealitiesConference.com If you would like to help the show please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast.